Today's scripture is 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 17 through 21. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all of Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between the two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. Well, according to the um, global conflict tracking website, there are currently 27 conflicts, most of them violent, in the world today. 27 national conflicts. Now, of course, most of our attention is on the conflict that is in Ukraine, naturally because it is Russia who has invaded him. And yet, besides U Ukraine, there remain many, many serious conflicts around the world. The, conflicts, the conflict in Afghanistan goes on and continues. There's conflicts in Syria, and there's wars in Ethiopia. There's war in Yemen. There's conflicts in South Sudan and parts of Southeast Asia, even this morning while we speak. And then there's not to mention the, the conflicts that rage on the streets of the United States and on the Internet over social justice and abortion and guns and violence. This world, beloved, just seems is in perpetual conflict. And despite the best efforts of world peace organizations, the United Nations and SHIELD, <laughs> it seems, <laughs> that was for Brandon, it seems humanity is always fighting somewhere or something. In a sense, beloved, I, I guess if you think about it, you could say that what's happening in the real world, in this physical world, is actually a reflection of what's happening in the spiritual realm. See, we have an enemy, beloved. We have an enemy who is diligent. And he is diligent in warfare. His mission is death and destruction. His mission is the death and destruction of God's creation. And the Bible tells us in John chapter 8 and verse 44 that Satan is a murderer and a liar from the beginning. It's who he is 
This is what he does. He is in the world, as we know, to kill, to steal, and destroy. And hatred and inhumanity in this world, beloved, are manifestations of his handiwork. And his handiwork is everywhere. His handiwork is everywhere. There is not a sphere of life in which Satan's influence is not seen and felt. In fact, in fact, beloved, Satan's power and influence and warfare would totally consume the world except for the mercy of God and sending Jesus Christ. Why did Christ come into the world? The Bible says in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8 that he came into the world to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus Christ came into the world to destroy the works of the devil. And this, beloved, becomes the primary universal struggle. It is the conflict behind the conflict. The primary conflict in the world is not between tribes and people. The primary conflict is not between nations and kingdoms. It is between the God of heaven and earth and the ruler of darkness and this age. And this has been the conflict from the beginning. It has found itself manifested in various ways at various times, but this has always been the struggle behind the struggle. This was the conflict between Adam and Eve and the serpent. This was the conflict behind Cain and Abel. This was the conflict behind Moses and Pharaoh. This was the conflict behind Gideon and the Mennonites. This was the conflict when David stood against Goliath. And this is the conflict behind Elijah and the prophets of Baal, Omar Kamal. The names and the places change. But the primary contestants don't. All of these were real battles and real struggles with real people living in a real world. But ultimately, like all the struggles in our lives, the struggle comes down between God and Satan to answer one question. Who is Lord? Who is God? 
Who is sovereign? Who is really worthy of worship and praise? And in every struggle since the beginning of time, every battle, God has proved himself God. And he made that point again on Mount Carmel with Elijah and the prophets of Baal. This morning we see the battle lines are drawn. As we saw last week, the time had come. The time had come and the battle lines were being drawn. Elijah was back in Israel. But not only was Elijah back in Israel, Elijah was back, and he was looking for Ahab. I didn't say that. That's what he said. In 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 14, when Obadiah ran upon Elijah, Elijah told Obadiah to tell Ahab, go and tell Ahab, Elijah is here. It's on sight. Because the drought, beloved, had been devastating. It had been devastating. Crops and livestock had been lost. And in the midst of all this loss, Baal had proved powerless to do anything about it. And Ahab was desperate. He was looking for a scapegoat, scapegoat, and he had, he had pinned the problem on Elijah. For these past three years, and he had hunted, hunted for Elijah to no avail. But now... Elijah was back, and because he was back, conflict was imminent, conflict was inevitable. This is one of those situations where, you know, the conflict just doesn't happen. You know, it builds. You know, it just doesn't happen. Just don't all of a sudden, you know, something happened and you get in a fight with somebody. Or you're just driving down the road and they cut you off and now all this road rage just takes over. No, no, no. This is one of those times where it builds, where there is a growing tension. There is talk. There's even smack talk. One of those times, you just keep running your mouth and keep running your mouth. Like David and Goliath. You know, David and Goliath's fight didn't just happen. No, no, it didn't just happen. You remember what Goliath said when he first saw David? He looked at David and said, who is this? Who is this that you're going to come at me with sticks and stones? You come near to me and I will feed your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Don't you step with me, boy. You remember what David said in return? 
man, I'm going to cut your head off. I'm going to cut your head off and feed you and your people. You and your people. I'm coming for everybody. And I'm going to feed them to the birds and the beasts of the field. There was tension between David and Goliath, and it was thick. Beloved, there was tension between Elijah and Ahab, and it was thick. And it's thick, beloved, because the conflict is every day. The conflict is every day. The enemy is challenging God and God's people every day, whether you realize it or not. And when it comes to a head and it boils up and all of a sudden now you see it, it didn't just start. The enemy has been at it has been poking and has been prodding every day whether you realize it or not. And the conflict at Carmel not only illustrates the nature of this battle for us, but it also gives us some important lessons that we need to understand when it comes to spiritual warfare. And how this battle takes place and what's actually going on oftentimes behind the scenes. In fact, there are two things I want us to, so I want us to reflect on this morning, just two. Concerning this battle, and the first one is the point of instigation. And then the second one is the point of the confrontation. But first, I want us to look at this instigation. Because you know every fight has an instigator. Every fight has an instigator. The one whose primary action is the primary reason for the conflict. And we know this because one of the first questions we ask when a fight breaks out is what? Who started it? Who started this? Who brought about this? Who started this trouble? That's Ahab's doing. Ahab accused Elijah of starting it. He accused Elijah of being the instigator. You see, beloved, there was trouble in Israel. And Ahab blamed Elijah. When he finally sets eyes on Elijah in verse 17, the Bible says, when he saw him, he said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel, you troublemaker, you low-down snake in the grass? You started this. Politically, the drought had been a disaster for Ahab. The people wanted answers, and he couldn't give them. Religiously, the drought had been a nightmare. 
They had called upon Baal, and Baal could not be found. He was powerless and useless. Financially, the drought had crippled the nation. Not only were there no crops, but the livestock was dying. The stock market had crashed. Things in Israel had gotten bad. There was inflation. There was high gas prices. Rent was too high. Empty shelves. Lack of products. They ran out of baby food. From whence came all this trouble? Ahab said, Elijah was the troublemaker. Elijah was the instigator. Then Elijah chirped back, didn't he? He put the blame where it really was. In verse 18, the Bible says, I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Ahab accused Elijah of instigating his problems. Elijah shot back with the truth and taught him that he was his worst own enemy. Because Ahab believed his trouble was from the outside. But Elijah reminded him that his trouble was from within. Beloved, that is because trouble always comes from within. Can we be honest this morning? Trouble always comes from within. The problem, Elijah said, the problem was, and the problem is, idolatry. The problem is, the problem was, the instigator of it all, beloved, is the human heart. That is the prime instigator. The human heart. The Bible says in Jeremiah, right, 7, 17 and 9, that the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? The worst and most dangerous enemy. Can we be honest this morning? The worst and most dangerous enemy that we encounter every day, beloved, is self. Self-will, self-wisdom, self-righteousness, self-serving, self-dependence, self-boasting, self-confidence, self-importance, self-worship. And this is all the enemy does, beloved. All the enemy does is gets us to focus and adore ourselves to ourselves above everything and everyone else. And if he can get us to adore and focus 
on ourselves more than anything else, then when anything goes wrong, we're going to blame somebody else. Always do. Always do. We blame others. Just like Ahab. And nothing says idolatry like blaming others. We love, we love to blame others because we love ourselves. We love to blame others. And this is the tactic of the enemy, isn't it? Get you to fall in love with yourself so that anything goes wrong, you blame somebody else. It's the height of idolatry, beloved. This is the serpent tempting Adam and Eve to sin, isn't it? When they sinned, what happened? The idolatry of sin was revealed. Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the serpent. Because we love to blame others. That's what we do. Things going wrong, it's not me, it's my wife. It's my husband. It's my children. It's the job. It's the church. And yet, if I am honest this morning, beloved, I am the trouble of Israel. I am the trouble of Israel this morning. Or as Paul would say in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15, I am the worst sinners. I am the worst of sinners. I am my worst enemy. If there is trouble, let me examine myself first. If there is trouble and conflict in Israel, let me look at my own heart. That's what Ahab should have done. He should listen to the prophet in Lamentations chapter 3 and verse 40 where it says, let us examine our ways and test them. Let us return to the Lord. There's trouble in Israel, beloved. Let us examine ourselves. And let us always be willing to look at ourselves and examine our own lives. It was Socrates who said that the Unexamined life is not worth living. But more importantly, beloved, the unexamined life does not know the mercy of God. Self-examination leads to mercy. This is the point of it, beloved. This is why God says, look at yourselves. Examine yourselves. Search your heart and know what you'll find. You'll find your need for mercy. He who knows himself to be the worst of sinners is he who receives the mercy of God. That's what Paul says. In verse 15 of chapter, Timothy chapter 1, he says, I am the worst of sinners. But then in verse 16, he says, but for that very reason, I was shown mercy. Because I was the worst of sinners. I was the chief idolater in Israel. And 
And because I acknowledge that, I received mercy so that God may display his glory and that others would see that if you would examine yourself, you too would receive mercy. Listen, beloved. The mercy of God is most precious to those who know themselves best. That's to whom the mercy of God is most precious. The mercy of God is not precious to the Pharisee. In Luke chapter 18 and verse 13, the mercy of God was not precious to the Pharisee, but the mercy of God was precious to the tax collector who knew himself best and said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. The examined life rejoices to know that the sin and the misery are from me, but the grace and the mercy are from God. Every, every, every day. And the wonder of it all, beloved, is that his grace and mercy are greater than all my sin, all my idolatries, all my waywardness. No matter how bad I am when I self-examine, his grace is greater. This is why we're not afraid to self-examine. This is why we're not afraid to admit that we're sinners. This is not why we're not afraid to say that we are imperfect. Because the greater the sin, the greater the grace. The greater the transgressions, the greater the mercy. Unfortunately, beloved, Ahab failed the self-examination. And what happens when we fail to self-examine? You said it, sister. It escalates. The conflict escalates. Ask yourself all the time. Ask yourself, Pastor Phil, why does the conflict escalate? Because we fail to self-examine. And then the heat turns up. And it escalates. And that's what happened. Led to the escalation and the confrontation. After this talk back and forth, then came the confrontation. And as they got set to do battle, there's a couple important lessons that we learn here about spiritual warfare that God illustrates that are so important and so true. And the first one is this, beloved, that the conflict takes place in enemy territory. Hey, don't miss this. The conflict takes place in enemy territory. It takes place in hostile territory. 
Elijah said, okay, verse 19 in chapter 18, now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Meet me on Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel, beloved, was a stronghold for Baal. A stronghold for Baal worship. The altars to Baal and the Asherah were well established. And they were in working shape because they had been well used. By contrast, in verse 30 of chapter 18, the Bible says that on Mount Carmel, the altar of the Lord had fell in disrepair. It had been neglected. It was obvious which worship was king on Mount Carmel. It was Baal worship. And when Elijah called for the confrontation to take place on Mount Carmel, he was given the enemy home field advantage. I'll come to your place. Meet me on your field. He was preparing to do battle in enemy territory. Because, beloved, when it comes to spiritual warfare, don't miss this, the battle is always in enemy territory. Why? Because the forces of God are never on the defense. The kingdom of God is never on the defense. The kingdom of God marches forward. God is always on the offense. He is always taking back what the devil stole. That's what God does. It was Moses entering into Egypt. It's the children of Israel entering into the promised land. It is Joshua going into Jericho. It is David marching into and in, in against the Philistines. The kingdom of God is not in retreat. That's what the Bible says. Matthew chapter 11, verse 12. The kingdom of God advances, entering in enemy territory, taking back God's goods. That's what it does. That's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus did. You do realize that Jesus frequently went into the heart of enemy lands. In Mark chapter 5, the Bible says that he went into the land of the demoniac. He went into the home of the demons. Coming into the world, the Bible says in Mark chapter 3 and verse 27 that Jesus entered into the strong man's house, bound the strong man, then stole back what the strong man stole. 
This is the epitome of spiritual welfare, beloved. Listen, Jesus didn't come into the world to steal. He came, he came to take back what sin and death has stolen from him. Elijah didn't go to Carmel to steal Carmel. He went to Carmel to take it back. That's what spiritual warfare is, beloved. Jesus didn't come to steal sheep. He came to rescue us from the mouth of the lion and save us from the jaws of death. We belong to him. The enemy stole it. And the Lord Jesus came to take it back. When Jesus died, he entered into death so that he might take back what sin and death has stolen. the lives of his people. It says in old King James in Ephesians chapter 4, he used to say, when Jesus, when Jesus Christ ascended into the grave, he led captivity captive. He came to take back what the enemy stole. Sin and death had stolen and Jesus came to take it back. The devil is a thief, beloved. But the Bible says he is a thief. And every time, every time you choose joy and not anger, you take back what the devil stole. Every time you choose love and not hatred, you take back what the devil stole. Every time you choose heaven over hell, you take back what the devil stole. Because the battle is not just in hostile territory. But it's in hostile territory for the hearts of God's people. It's for the hearts of God's people. That's why this is important. This is why Elijah got to go to Carmel. Because he got to take back Carmel. Because he got to take back the hearts of God's people. Notice what Elijah did. He called for 850 prophets of Baal and the Asherah to join him on Mount Carmel. And probably many of them were already there. Many of them were already there, beloved. But more importantly than having the prophets there, he called for the people of Israel to be present. Verse 19, he says, Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel. There is going to be a conflict, beloved. And the point of the coming conflict was not to entertain the people. 
He was not setting up a show. It was not so that they would leave indifferent from there and give them something to talk about tomorrow morning around the water cooler. That wasn't the point. But beloved, he invites them, commands them, summons them to Mount Carmel because on Mount Carmel, this was going to be decision day. This was election day in Israel. This was election day. And there was no option of not voting. Did you hear what I said? I have a friend, a dear friend, Pastor Phil, who for years didn't vote in elections. And he would tell people who encouraged him to vote that he was exercising his right not to vote. Now, I think he's changed that tune in recent years, but in America, you may have an obligation to vote, but you also have a right not to vote. But with God, you don't have that option. With God, you don't have the option of not voting. You don't have the option of no decision. Elijah said when those people got summoned to Mount Carmel, the Bible says in verse 21 that Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, you vote for him. If Baal is God, then you vote for him. If the Lord our God is God, then you follow him. But if Baal is God, then you follow him. The people of Israel had accepted the worship of Baal. It had become politically expedient. It had become socially acceptable. And not only had it become socially acceptable, but it had become the expected thing to do. And even those who didn't agree with it, and even those who probably didn't like the practices of Baal, they accepted it. And accepted those who engaged in it. They had accommodated it, and they had considered it okay. But again, beloved, this is the insidious undermining scheme of the enemy. This is the nature of the conflict. This is what idolatry is among God's people. Idolatry among God's people is rarely an outright rejection of God. Idolatry among God's people is mixing. It's mixing. They're looking, they didn't answer. They didn't answer Elijah because they're in their mind saying, isn't there room on this mountain from everyone? Isn't there room on this mountain to worship whatever? Isn't there space in my life for whatever I want? 
Why can't we serve God today and Baal tomorrow? You know, we love to do, beloved. We love to mix Jesus. Like we mix our drinks. Jesus ain't no rum punch. <laughs> Jesus doesn't mix. He doesn't mix, beloved. But you see this all the time. He like to mix Jesus with white nationalism. Doesn't mix. People like to mix Jesus with black nationalism. I know, I used to do it. It doesn't mix, beloved. It's what Paul accused the Galatians of doing, mixing Jesus with Judaism. It doesn't mix. You can't mix Jesus with Islam. They try to mix Jesus with secularism. That's what, that's, what, that's what a lot of people do. You do that, what happens? You develop this part-time relationship with Jesus. You know? You go to church every now and then. Or when things get bad. Or for the holiday. Or when mama says, I ain't seen you in a minute. You pray when you think you need to. You serve when you ain't got nothing else to do. You think it's okay that you can have Jesus as your Savior, but you don't have to make him your Lord. You like to call yourself a Christian, but don't want to be a disciple. And all this other nonsense. Because all it is, beloved, is you seeking to have Jesus on one day and yourself all the others. Listen, I understand. I understand, beloved. The exclusivity of Jesus is perhaps the most challenging truth we hold today. It is. It is. Because in our day, we applaud and preach diversity. That's what we do. This is the age of inclusion, and we celebrate tolerance. And we believe that tolerance is the highest of virtues, and therefore we drill it into our children. Live and let live. Whatever is right for you is right. And yet, none of that changes what Jesus said. In Matthew chapter 7, in verse 13 and 14, he says that there are only two ways. The broad way that leads to destruction and the narrow way that leads to life. In John chapter 14 and verse 6, he said, I am that way. I am the truth. I am that life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. 
The Bible says in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, speaking of Jesus, that there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. Having two opinions of Jesus is like having no opinion of Jesus. Both are lost. Did you hear what I said this morning? I want to be clear this morning. Having two opinions of Jesus is like having no opinion of Jesus. Both of those are lost. Elijah on Mount Carmel reminds us that the grace of God and the mercy of God and sending Jesus puts the onus on us to choose. Puts the onus on us to choose. Elijah on Mount Carmel put the onus on the people of Israel to make a choice. Listen, beloved, and this is important to know, even this morning, God did not send Jesus to save you regardless of your decision. No, no, no. Don't you go down that theological rabbit trail. Don't you go down that hole. God didn't send Jesus to save you regardless of your decision. No, no, no. You have to decide. You have to choose. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 12. The Bible says that God set before his people blessing and cursing. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15. God set before his people life and death. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, Jesus set before us two ways, the broad way and the way that leads to destruction and the narrow way that leads to life. This morning I pray, beloved, hear me clearly. I pray that your choice is Jesus. Choose Jesus this morning. Choose Jesus and you choose blessing. Choose Jesus and you choose life. Choose Jesus and you choose heaven. Choose Jesus. Make Jesus your choice. Make Jesus your choice this morning. Regardless of what anybody else says, regardless of all the options that the world would give you, I plead with you this morning, you make Jesus your choice. Not a part-time choice, not a sometime choice. Make Jesus your permanent choice. Because he, beloved, is truly the only choice. 
That's it. That's it. As the song said, some folks would rather have houses and land. And some folks choose silver and gold. And these things they treasure. And they forget about their souls. But I have decided to make Jesus my choice. The road is rough, and the going gets tough, and the hills are hard to climb. But I started out long time ago, and there is no doubt in my mind, I've decided to make Jesus my choice. He choose you this day. Who is God? Is it Jesus? Was it all the other entrapments that the world has to offer? I pray, I pray, beloved, that every person here has decided to make Jesus your choice. Let's pray.